The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Messages of Hope. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me again. I so appreciate all of your wonderful feedback each week that the show is bringing you help and hope and healing and of course the major premise of our show is that there is a greater reality that we when we die we are not gone forever that that we go on to more adventures in consciousness my guest last week if you listen to it it was uh, Marianne Borer she shared with us in her book the gift within us about uh people exploring the greater reality and she has one chapter in there entitled Today's Brave Paranormal Explorers. And I'm going to read straight from her book before I introduce our guest. She wrote, Today, studying the subject of intuitive ability is still largely shunned by many conventional scientists and the scientific community at large. However, even in this hostile, unwelcoming climate, there are some amazing people who are researching this topic. These bold scientists are persevering and moving forward because they believe, based on experimental data, that there is a truth out there, a greater knowing that has not yet been discovered, and that we, human beings, the planet, the universe, could all benefit from understanding. Well, with perfect timing, our guest today is Dr. Dean Radin, one of those scientific visionaries that Marianne spoke about in the book. Dr. Radin is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology. And before joining, joining the research staff at IONS, Dr. Radin held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. I could go on and on with his list of credentials, but I'd rather talk to him person, personally. The staff at IONS and I are both interested in mediumship, and that's how Dr. Radin and I became acquainted. So I'm just thrilled that he's agreed to be on a show. I think it's courageous of him to be on a show where we talk about mediumship every week with Dr. Radin. Thank you for honoring us today. Thanks very much for asking me. And I even said, what should I call you? He said, call me Dean. And I go right back to Dr. Radin. It's just that my Navy training has me with such respect. I go right back to the doctor part of it. But I, I want to talk a lot in this show about one of your more recent books, Real Magic. But just looking back at 
Marianne's book, The Gift Within Us, I saw some quotes from you that prompt me to get the conversation started here. A quote from you says that you think that it's important for the survival of our species to do research on psychic abilities. I'd love if you just start off the program by saying why that is. Well, the, a case can be made that many, perhaps most of the problems that we face as humanity is based on what we think of ourselves, who and what we think we are. So if you look at uh, mainstream science today, which is based on a materialistic model, it's been extremely successful. We certainly don't want to get rid of it. But one of the consequences of thinking that everything is made out of matter is that uh, the mainstream perspective is that we are our brains. Or as uh, Marvin Minsky said from MIT, that we're machines made of meat. So if, if we're machines made of meat and the machine breaks and the meat goes away and we're gone, that, that's the end of the story. So this, is, this easily gives rise to a nihilistic philosophy. This is the philosophy that basically nothing, that nothing matters. There's no purpose in anything. We're just a random collection of molecules uh, and we momentarily live as human beings, and that's all there is, nothing else. So college students learn this. They're given a lot of reasons to expect that it's true, hmm. because as we know, science is pretty good at what it does, and we can prove it from our technologies. But the underlying question is, uh, well, what is consciousness? What, what is our awareness? How do we begin to understand it? And on this question, science is really, really bad. Science does not have an answer to that question. And until we do get an answer to it, we don't know what consciousness actually is or where it comes from or how it's made, if it's made at all. And that means that we don't understand who we are. So it's, it, this is the reason then why uh, psychic phenomena are important to study, but uh, other aspects of consciousness too. Like basically anything having to do with awareness, which is ultimately everything we know, uh, we don't know how we know that. So, so actually, it's not, not quite what I said, because we, we know about memory and cognition and so on. We don't know about the nature of experience. How is it that we can experience something subjectively? That's a major mystery. And so we had better figure it out. And I'm trying to find where the quote was, but you wrote somewhere that scientists don't like to feel stupid, and certainly not being able to explain something would do that. Well, science, uh, the, the fun science anyway, is always at the leading edge of what's known. So if you're always faced with not knowing the right answer, uh, you have to maintain a state of humility. That, right, we don't, we don't always know what the answer is. On the other hand, people come to scientists as the authorities, and so a scientist generally will be asked a question about something, and the last thing you want to say as an authority is you don't know. So then maybe they'll make up something, or they'll give their best guess, and they, don't, they won't tell you that it's a guess. Uh, but much of the time at the leading edge, we actually don't know. So if someone were to meet you at a cocktail party, and they said what what do you do? What would you tell them? 
Uh, I actually struggle with that. Uh, for one thing, I don't tend to go to cocktail parties. <laughs> Somehow uh, I knew that as I brought up the questions. Funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it partially because I don't drink, but also because I'm I'm an introvert. So I'm much more comfortable uh, being with one person rather than a room full of people, especially strangers. Uh, but if someone does ask, uh, what do you do? I, I usually first default into saying that I'm editor of a medical journal, which oh, is that's true. A good, yeah. So I, uh, I'm co-editor-in-chief of an integrative medicine journal. And so if they pursue and they say, oh, that's interesting, tell me more about that, I might say something about it. And the reason why I don't immediately say, well, I study psychic phenomena is because I won't, I'd rather have them calibrated first. I want to have a sense of, well, what, what do they think about this topic? Because if they come at the topic from either a fundamentalist religion perspective, it's very tricky. You don't, you don't know how they're going to respond. Uh, or if they come at it from a scientific perspective, meaning taking science as a kind of dogma, uh, there too, you don't know how they're going to respond. So that's why I, I would rather that they... Uh, if they pursue in asking, what do I do? I will give them a piece of paper with a questionnaire on it, and then they fill it out and only has 532 <laughs> questions. And then I will do an evaluation at the end, and I will get a better sense of who they are, and then maybe I'll admit what I do. Well, Dean, it's a little easier for me because the, there is that exact same thing with me when we meet people at parties or otherwise. I don't say when they say, what do you do? I, I rarely say I am a medium, but rather than the 532 person questionnaire, I just use my psychic abilities. <laughs> Are they going to uh, be open to this? I know you're kidding, yeah. but yeah. you're great. bypassing the, uh, the, the analytical part and going right to the, to the, the meat of the problem. That's good. Yeah. So, but, so let's fast forward. Now you're at a uh, gathering of fellow scientists and they know that you study psychic phenomena. Have things changed over, let's say, the past five years as far as scientists becoming more open to studying consciousness and the extension of that psychic phenomena? Well, there's a split between public and private. So in private, uh, I've, never, I've never met anyone, including people who are very well-known skeptics, uh, who are not fascinated by this topic and they'll ask good questions and I hope I give good answers and they just become more fascinated. In, in public, it's completely different. So a pub, especially someone who is known as being a spokesperson of science or even worse, a professional skeptic, they'll come off as quite nasty and they may even apologize afterwards in private, mm. but, but they're, they're playing a role and uh, the role is, like even journalists that I've met do this, they will ask uh, pointed questions to, to try to either trip you up or to embarrass you or something to try to get a rise. And that's, of course, that's what they're doing. That's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So because I've talked to many, many people in private about this, I know that at, at virtually all levels of business, of government, of science, the vast majority of people are very interested. Some are interested in the science. Most are interested because of their own personal experience. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's so interesting. So 
what has led you to bypass the scorn or criticism and thoroughly dive in? I've always been driven by curiosity. So I, I could have gone into many different fields, in the academic world or in industry. Uh, the reason why I stick with consciousness research in general and psychic phenomena in particular is because it's the most curious thing that I've run across. And as we were already talking about a little bit, I think uh, understanding these kinds of phenomena better tell us a lot more about the capacities of consciousness and perhaps what it is than virtually any other discipline that I can think of. So, so that's why. Okay. And how about personal experience of psychic phenomena? I know you've, you've tested many, many people who claim to have special abilities. Have you experienced what the people you investigate and research claim? I have. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm at the level of someone who is talented psychically or someone who has control over the phenomena, but certainly I've had many spontaneous psychic events. I tend, even though they're personal experience, I tend not to put too much weight on those experiences. They're always fun when they happen, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've learned that, especially as a psychologist, you, you can see how easy it is to fool yourself. Uh, so we, our memories are, are good, but not, they're not that great. Uh, we can innocently confabulate a memory to make it seem better than it actually was. Uh, our perception, our cognition, all, all of the aspects of what we think of as the mind is pretty good most of the time, but not perfect. So as, as you know, uh, if, if you have some kind of a surgical procedure and they give you an anesthetic and it contains certain kinds of drugs, it'll just totally wipe your memory. Well, then, well, it, it's a way, an easy way of seeing that what we normally think of is we're in pretty good control of our own mind. Well, to some extent. This is why I tend to rely much more, rather than my own experiences, which are fun, uh, I rely more on controlled laboratory tests. So they're, they're more artificial, they're not quite as fun for somebody who's not a scientist, but we have much higher confidence in the results that uh, if we're studying telepathy, for example, if we can see that happen in the laboratory, mm -hmm. then I jump for joy. Whereas if, if I have a moment of where I'm apparently in telepathic rapport with somebody, I, I get a thrill out of it, but I, I couldn't use that then as evidence other okay. than for me. That's such a great answer. I have people who I'm teaching to have re have on-demand experiences of connecting with the greater reality that often ask me, well, how do I know the difference between my imagination and connecting with higher intelligence? And right. I tell them it's the repetitiveness of it. You need to do it so often that you can tell the difference, which is a very strange way to learn something. For me, it's so obvious from the repeated experience. So you said, you know, it's, it's easy to think sometimes we're fooling ourselves. What do the controlled laboratory experiments show? Well, they show that in principle that the, the whole realm of psychic phenomena are real. And remember that an experiment is just a formalized form of, exper of experience. An mm -hmm. experiment is an experience. 
And you're right that it's the repeatability of the experiment that's really the key. And the difference then between personal experience and what we see in the laboratory is that we are able to lock down all of the alternative explanations. So we know, for example, if we do a telepathy experiment, that we're, we're locking down the possibility that maybe somebody was able to hear what, what the remote person is trying to mentally send to you. And we've, we don't have any Confederates involved, and we use proper randomization, and we use very heavy shielding so there's no sensory leakage, and on and on and on, a long list of things. And the things that are, are prevented by the control aspect of the experiment are things that skeptics have said over many, many years. So we'll do an experiment, and the skeptic will say, well, maybe the method that you're using to choose the, the telepathic target wasn't random or it could have been figured out, or maybe somebody accidentally showed it to somebody else, all of those kinds of questions, they become part of the protocol. And so when you do an experiment where the protocol is completely locked down and you're still able to mentally get the information, that gives you more and more confidence that it really is something real. So that, that's why I can say with pretty high confidence that perceptual psychic effects, clairvoyance, precognition, that sort of thing, telepathy, we have very, very good evidence that that is real because we can see it in the laboratory. The other class of evidence is uh, mentally influencing the world, events in the world. There are two, lots and lots of experiments. The Overall, the evidence is not quite as good as perceptual mm-hmm. sci, uh, but it's still good enough for us to say with confidence now that, yeah, that's a real thing. Okay. So... You have spoken about, and it's in your book, the, a term called SIDDHIS, S-I-D-D-H-I-S. I'm familiar with that term, but I'm sure many of those listening are not. Would you tell us what those are? Well, the term is from Sanskrit, and it roughly translates into perfection or attainment. It's the, uh, comes from classical yoga, where the goal of classical yoga, unlike the uh, aerobics of today, is, uh, is meditation. And the goal of meditation is to quiet the body and the mind to such an extent that you're able to see the world as it is, rather than filtered through your perceptions. So in, in the process of, uh, of practicing meditation for long periods of time, your awareness begins to drop down, metaphorically, into what seems to be a universal consciousness. You become pure mind or pure awareness. And one of the consequences of that is that you're able to then uh, perceive it almost in a universal way. So there's, there's something like 25 different cities, classical cities. Each one is a different kind of psychic power. The very first one, the, element, the, the elementary one, is, is translated as the ability to see past, present, and future at the same time. So the, we would use the word like clairvoyance for that, or possibly mm-hmm. precognition. Uh, that spontaneously arises simply as a result of long-term meditation. That's so it. at IONS, we, we did a study asking over a 1,000 meditators at different levels of practice, which of these kinds of experiences have you had as a result of your meditative practice. And sure enough, clairvoyance is right there on the top of the list. Isn't that something? And that's one of the things that I enjoyed about your book, 
real magic, which we'll talk about a lot more in the second half of the program. But it's that some people say that meditation is all about the the union with God or the quieting the mind, and you should not be seeking powers. Yet there are other people that that do meditation to seek those powers on purpose. I found found that very interesting that you made that distinction. Yeah, yeah, and and even in the yogic tradition, the, it's often said you shouldn't dwell on these powers once they arise. But nevertheless, they're u- they're useful as a kind of a yardstick uh, to tell you where are you in terms of your development. The other thing is, of course, that even some very very long term meditators will never get any of the cities. So you can think of it more like you mm-hmm. have a natural talent for a particular way of perceiving reality. And some people are really, really good at perceiving through space and time. Others are really, really good at perceiving non-human entities that are out there somehow. So just as there, we, we all have uh, idiosyncratic talents, the same seems to be true for what happens during meditation and what kind of cities arise. Yeah, I, that's beautiful. Because that's what I teach in my classes. You don't know until you try, and meditation is just one of the most reliable and safest way to get there to right. have the arise it was i found it interesting reading uh this is also a quote from your supernormal book you said the presence of real cities real psychic effects lurking in the dark boundaries between mind and matter are so frightening and disorienting that defense mechanisms immediately snap into place to protect our psyches from these disturbing thoughts Right. I I had an experience just a few nights ago in the middle of the night. Now I I speak to people who have passed. I've done it for over a decade now, and it has never frightened me. And I've asked them to show up so I could see them objectively, and that hasn't happened. But I just I want to run this one by you. I was awakened by the absolute experience of someone pressing on the base of my foot. It shocked me, and I woke up and I said, "Do that again," and it repeated it. I mean, there was no difference between a real person and physical body pressing on the ball of my foot and what I felt. And it freaked me out. And I said, are you a new guide? And in perfect timing, it did it again. Now, Dean, this was not a muscle twitch. This was a press, a pressure. And then one more time, I said, do you come in love? And it pressed one more time and then went away. This is just such a great time to ask a scientist. What do you make of that? But you see, you come from a tradition where you're a warrior. You're the, you're the kind of person who runs into the burning building. And so for you, why something might be frightening, that's, that's not going to stop you, right? I mean, your, right. your whole personality and experience is, uh, okay, then, bring it on. Let's, that's exactly what I it. said in, in meditation the next day. Bring it on. It's true. Yeah, yeah. so whereas somebody else who is the kind that runs away from a burning building, they could freak out and then just never want to talk about it again. So this is yet another example of our personalities, simply the way that we respond to events out there. Well, we'll oftentimes determine whether something is perceived as frightening uh, or, or not. In your case, you had the courage to confront what was going on, and it probably once you understood that this is a kindly spirit of some type, uh, then it wasn't frightening anymore. It's just that that particular spirit had a strange way of knocking on the door. (laughs) 
In fact, they said I needed to confront certain fears because it was frightening, but it was so exciting, so exciting. It just could not deny that there was intelligence behind that. So we'll see where that leads. Stay tuned for more. (laughs) We're going to come back after the break. We still have a few minutes till the break and talk about your latest book, Real Magic. That title is fascinating. But the subtitle, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. I'd love if you share with us, what is that secret power? Yeah, some of the comments I I see on Amazon, people said, this is a great book, but he never told us what the secret was. Well, I thought it was obvious. The (laughs) secret power of the universe is consciousness itself. Yes. So maybe they didn't read that far in the book. Yeah, it's all about uh, consciousness with a big C is uh, sometimes thought of as universal consciousness and, of course, God and many other kinds of names that are used for the same kind of concept, that there's some kind of, there's something woven into the fabric of the universe, perhaps is the universe, uh, that is the power, and power is, of course, not quite the right way to put power in quotes, it's the source from which everything arises. And so what could be more powerful than that? And, of course, it's not really a secret either. It's, it's so, in fact, so much not a secret that what I call little c, the thing inside your head that, that you call me, that is made out of exactly the same stuff as big C. In fact, it yeah. is big C. That's why in, in Hinduism we'd say Brahman, uh, Atman equals Brahman. That yourself and the universal self are actually the same thing. We just don't normally realize that. Yeah, that was the one note that I took out of your book that I wrote in my special notebook of things that really strike me as just remember this one was capital C equals little c. I mean, I know that the big universal consciousness is with we are we arise from that. But to put it in that equation like that is just beautiful to see it. It was just mind expanding. And I love that. So a great takeaway there. But I, when I read that the secret power of the universe, and you said it just now, it is no secret, but it certainly attracts people to the book. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a secret in the sense, not, not in the sense of being hidden, but in the sense that we don't normally think about it in those terms, especially in the Western world. In the Western secular world where we're saturated by science, uh, we, we don't think very we, – we're not trained in, we're not educated in uh, the esoteric traditions, uh, both Eastern and Western, even though those traditions saturate popular culture. That was one of the themes within my book, Real Magic. Okay, and we're going to have to come back after the break for – learning more about that book. I hope you'll all join us. We're talking with Dr. Dean Radin. DeanRadin.org is his website, and we'll talk about realmagicbook.com when we get back. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Well, I hope you all are enjoying this conversation as much as I am. We're talking with Dr. Dean Radin, Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I think it would be helpful if you told folks what in the heck noetic means and why they chose that for the name. <laughs> noetic is from the Greek root word nous, N-O-U-S, which means to know. So noetic in English refers to types of knowing where you have certainty that you're correct, but you have you don't know why you know it. Yeah, say, we call that claircognizance as mediums. Right. And so one of the definitions of intuition is that you know without knowing how you know. In this case, noetic is a kind of intuition, but where you have certainty that it's correct, and in fact it is correct. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do so you I, have a you know, certainty of knowing that the things you research are correct? Well, no. In, in science, uh, you gain confidence at different levels about different things. So you weigh the evidence and you come up with assessments as to how confident you can be. And if something gets to the point where you're 100% absolutely sure that it, that it is what it is, it, it kind of transitions out of science and into technology. Because at that point, you'd have so much confidence that you probably can make something out of it. You can do something pragmatically useful out of the phenomenon. But you have that, been researching this since you were a child, literally. Your biography mm -hmm. shows that you, you were fascinated with the outer limits of inner space since a child. And at age 12, started conducting experiments on psychic phenomena. Do you remember what some of those were? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know why I remember it so well, but I, I think I even still have it somewhere. So I was doing a little precognition test where uh, you take a piece of cardboard and then you, you cut out something that looks like an arrow and then you put a pin through the arrow so you can spin it. So the arrow you can spin and then you put different numbers around the edge, kind of like a roulette wheel. And now you use precognition to guess that when I spin this, I think it's going to land in number two or land in number six or whatever. So I, I was doing experiments like that when I was about 12. And I, as I said, I, I think I found the notebook at one point where I, I did that test repeatedly and it had little graphs and charts. And I didn't know statistics very well at that point, but I did as best as I could. So there was something about the idea of objectively testing these phenomena that has always appealed to me. Wow. I would say that your soul knew what it came here to do from the beginning. <laughs> well, several, you know, several psychics have said to me uh, independently and spontaneously that they felt that I was a reincarnation of a well-known scientist. Uh, and another even said, I kind of look like that scientist. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of all that, but maybe it's true. We come in already set with a certain a certain life path and then and you just do it that's pretty cool and you played the violin for much of your right. your life and it says your bio says that 
that helped your mental focus. I had a real aha with that because I played the flute and practiced daily, just like I do my meditation now. And it does take focus. So what, what do you think that focus did for your brain? Well, there's some evidence that uh, children who start early and especially on non-fretted stringed instruments, which means violin, viola, cello, bass sometimes, uh, that it it uh, changes the corpus callosum in the brain. And the wow. reason is that in order to, to be good on a, uh, on a stringed instrument that doesn't have frets, it means that you need to listen to the intonation. So, you, so that's part of your brain is attending then specifically to pitch. Another part to the bowing hand, which is an entirely different motor movement. Uh, the other part to your fingering hand, which is yet other motor movements, and then the entire piece, so that mm-hmm. you're trying to to emote something through the music, you have to use an emotional sense as well. So all of that has to be operating at the same time. Uh, and so between one and four hours a day for 20 years is, is what I was doing on the violin. Uh, one of the side effects of that is that when I was, probably about 15 or so, I took a class in typing. I went on to learn how to touch type. And I became extremely proficient probably within about a week. And Mm -hmm. another side effect is that in graduate school, I became interested in playing bluegrass music. So first I was playing it on on the violin. Of course, we call it a fiddle at that point. And then I decided that I liked the banjo so much that I wanted to learn how to do five string banjo. So in about a month, I was at performance level because the whatever's going on, both from the motor control and the intonation and all the rest, it transferred pretty easily from playing the violin to playing the banjo. So did the scientific bent pull you more than, than the music or why did you diverge then and not become a professional musician? Uh, It's partially because I've always been interested in everything and (laughs) I knew that uh, they don't tell you when you're uh, learning to play the violin, even even when you're young and playing professionally, that being a musician is very similar to being an athlete. That you need a strong body, you 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 need to be to have a lot of stamina to be able to do it. Because if you're playing four hours a day, and especially if you're, you're playing under performances where you have to do it regardless of how you feel. Uh, you need a strong body to do that. Hmm. And I, I, my body is not that strong. Uh, I've, it's always amazed me that people go out to exercise and then they feel really great afterwards. If I go out to exercise, I feel exhausted afterwards. Hmm. I, I have never achieved the feeling great part, which that's why to me, it's, it, it, clearly my body is not intended for that. So in graduate school, since I already knew that I'm not an athlete, uh, fortunately, there are other ways of making a living that did not require that I become a musician, and that's when I switched. Well, don't you see the perfection in that? Because you are one of these brave pioneers in the field of consciousness research, and it's a good thing you're not off playing the violin because your research is doing wonderful things for us these days. And I you suppose. show this. In, let's just transition then over to your book, Real Magic, your latest of several. All of them are just so filled with well-documented experiments and your conclusions. What is magic 
as you describe it. I speak all the time and I share my magical moments in readings when I connect with people who have passed, but that's not what you're talking about here. Well, it kind of is and it, and it isn't. So magic is also a synonym for something amazing, something which which is compelling, and that's fine. That That's part of magic as well. Uh, the, the magic is also Harry Potter. It's fiction. And magic is stage magic, illusions. The magic that I'm talking about is the ability of, of the mind to manipulate the world, the ability to see through space and time, and the ability to communicate with spirits. So it's otherwise known as uh, force of will, which is a name, basically, or a phrase they came up with to indicate mind-matter interaction. Divination, which is clairvoyance and precognition. Uh, and theurgy, which is the technical term for communicating with spirits. That's what real magic is. So when I saw this title, I was surprised because you are a distinguished, well-respected scientist and yet this title, I would think, would open you to scorn by your colleagues. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I generally am not too concerned about what other people think. If I was, I wouldn't be doing this kind of research. That's such so a while, great answer. I know that, that some of my colleagues uh, may want to stay away from sensitive terms like magic, especially since it, it uh, evokes images of the... Uh, of the occult and the witchcraft and that sort of thing. And so what I try to, to say then in this book is, well, yeah, there's going to be negative uses of any kind of power, and this is a kind of power, but there are also a whole bunch of positive uses. I mean, generally, we don't think of people who are healers as performing magic, but that is what they're doing. They're attempting to manipulate the physical world in some way. Well, that's what a magician does, a real magician. So... So I, the, it's true that some of my colleagues are a little bit shy about that, especially if they're in the academic world. But mostly the academic colleagues who would rather we don't talk about this. But the fact is that the practice of magic, whether it's called witchcraft or from the Wiccan tradition or pagan or whatever it happens to be, that practice is what parapsychology studies. Whether, whether we like it or not, that is what it is. So we're, we're of course, going to push against uh, cultural expectations of what we think about magic, and they only, and unfortunately, within the media, movies and television shows, most of the time it's uh, closely affiliated with horror. Not always. There's some, some TV shows have kind of a light touch, like um, Bewitched, shows like that. Mm -hmm. But most of them have a horror element, and that means that people will have an automatic response to the idea of real magic as something horrific. But as I keep trying to point out throughout the book, no, this is an ability. It's a, simply an aspect of the natural world, and just like you can use atomic power for good or for bad, the use of the power is an ethical and moral consideration, but the power itself is simply there. And so magical power is there. How you use it, well, that's a different question. I can just hear so many people listening saying, wow. And I love that you don't care what other people think because it led you to publish this book that gets people thinking outside the box, changing the paradigm of what mag magic is. And that's fantastic. Yeah. No, if I had to 
decide what I'm going to do based on how other people would respond, it would have been too dangerous to do this. I mean, I would, it, it would make things worse. Uh, but I think, as I said before, that's because I'm driven primarily by curiosity and creativity. Uh, I think it's more important for this, us to have this kind of a dialogue rather than to make believe that it's not there. I mean, it's, it's there. It's something that's real. So why are we not studying it? I believe one of the reasons we didn't mention earlier is, that, is funding for research that major universities are afraid that they won't get the funding if they certainly not if they use the term like magic. That is true. Although magic in terms of stage magic is now a respectable area of psychology because huh. it's the uh, stage magic is all about the art of deception. And so this is of interest to psychologists, both uh, deception perceptually and misguidance of, of people's attention, all of that is very interesting to, to figure out, well, how does, why is it so effective, stage magic or close-up magic? So that's okay. In fact, you can find academic papers all about magic, but they're talking about stage magic. It also turns out, which has surprised me as part of the research for this book, that the study of esoteric magic, meaning the kinds of magic that I'm talking about, this is also acceptable in the academic world from an anthropological perspective. So a lot hmm. of anthropologists, when they're studying indigenous societies, they run into beliefs and practices about magic. So that's okay to talk about, too. It's also true in, in uh, religious scholarship that magic forms the core of most uh, traditional religions. And so it's okay to talk about magic there as a practice. What's not okay is to talk about magic as, as if it's real. So that's, <laughs> that's why the direction of my book is actually quite different than you'd find anywhere in academia, because as an academic, you're not supposed to talk about magic as actually real. <laughs> Can you give us an example of a scientific study that demonstrates a magical practice in the term you're using it? Well, let's say we're interested in divination a magical practice of divination. So in the traditional way it's done, it's with mirror gazing, it's with uh, and And would you define ball. divination, please? Uh, perceiving the future, divining okay. the future, or, or, or divining something at a distance. So that's why the image of gazing into a crystal ball, sometimes the psychic is trying to see the future and sometimes trying to see something about an individual, like another family member or something like that at a distance. So that's, that's divination, knowing about something distant in space or time. Mm -hmm. so, so we say, okay, from, take it from a scientific perspective, we can say, is it possible to know something about a future event that you cannot infer? So it's, it's really in the future. No one knows what the right answer is right now. Is it possible, even in principle, to, to know that? So one of the experiments that I came up with in 1990s was called presentiment, which is contrasted with precognition. Precognition is to pre-know something. Presentiment is to pre-feel something. So if you want to, to measure feelings, uh, an easy way to do that is through psychophysiological methods. You measure uh, heartbeat and skin conductance and brain waves and physiological parts of your body. So 
I came up with a way of uh, continually measuring these these kinds of metrics, and then uh, and then show a sequence about every every 30 seconds, a new picture would show up on the computer screen while we're monitoring your physiology. And some of the pictures are very calm, and some are very emotional. And so if we have a presentiment of what's about to happen to us, then my prediction was that just before a calm picture shows up, your physiology would remain pretty calm. And just before a very emotional picture, your body would begin to gear up to mm. respond to that emotion. So that's that basic experiment. And, and to make a long story short, it works. You, you can see an arousal in the body before emotional pictures and no arousal before calm pictures. And, and these are done, by the way, in a form where uh, there's no, not only do, does the subject not know what's about to come up, but the experimenter doesn't know either because the pictures are in a completely random sequence and the selection of the picture is not made until immediately before, before it shows up. So it truly is a future event. So how do how do you explain that? Is that the big consciousness at work well, here? How do you explain? Yeah. So there's the there's two elements here. First of all, can you see that it happens? The answer is yes. The second one is well, then how do you explain it? So we know a lot more about the first part of that question than we do about the second part. But our our uh, current thinking is that uh, our perception of time is a construction that we were constantly using our memory and anticipation to imagine that there's a flow of time. Our clocks, of course, are constantly reminding us of that. Uh, but the equations of physics, both classical and quantum mechanics, they're time symmetric. Time doesn't even come into play in the way that we think the physical world works. So uh, when we have a response to something that, that, from an everyday perspective, is happening in the future, it's yeah, it's in the future, but that's kind of a psychological construct. That physically, wow. any event that's occurring is actually spread out in in a timeless space, to, to put it in simple terms. So it's so right it's, there, and, and so, some larger consciousness sees it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and and that is why one of the elementary cities is that you perceive past, present, and future at the same time, because that is in fact the way it really is. Oh. Our, our clock time as it passes is a psychological construction. That is so cool. So what is the sixth sense? Well, if you, if you add up all the number of senses that we have, it's something like 23 different senses. The, the sixth sense from a vernacular perspective is it's, it's ESP. It's an ability to to receive information from a distance. That, that's usually what is meant by the sixth sense. Uh, well, but just, we have you a, just we have blew a, my a, mind with 23 senses. I only oh, yeah. know of no, five. We have, like a, we have a vestibular sense, our sense of balance. Uh, we have a sense of motion. We have a sense of gravity, uh, a sense of acceleration. Uh, some, some people are sensitive to magnetic fields. Many, many senses like that. Okay. So the sixth sense then. Okay. Yeah, the sixth sense is the ability to gain information unbound by the everyday limitations of space and time and without the use of the ordinary senses. 
All right. What have your experiments shown about that? Well, it exists, and that's so. Uh, of the the six conclusions that I have at the end of Real Magic, the, the, I've ordered them in terms of our confidence that it's a real thing. So we have very, very high confidence that the sixth sense, namely ESP, is a real a real phenomenon, a real uh, ability that people have, and it is not part of the ordinary senses. Okay, that's. I love this. This is the conclusion of your book. So it's. I love that you validated that. What else did you conclude? So this, the second, uh, the second effect that we have high confidence on, is that these kinds of abilities are widely distributed among the general population. So some people will be extremely talented. Some may be talented and they don't know that they're talented, which I'd put you into that category because you discovered that you had this talent, which is almost always there. And in fact, it was there all the time, just like the ability is there. But if it's not exercised, then you may never know it. Right. So whereas some people are born being uh, talented psychics from the moment they're here and they have it for the rest of their life, that's a little bit rarer, but it, it happens too. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that most of these effects, most of, of ESP effects and the psychokinetic effects are unconscious. They arise from deeper levels of the mind than we are usually aware of. And that's one of the reasons why meditation is so useful, because it allows you to dive into those deep levels and actually pull up from the unconscious and make it conscious. That, that's where you start to get control over these effects. Uh, the fourth conclusion is that uh, these kinds of effects are stronger during non-ordinary states of awareness, like what you get in meditation or while dreaming or under the influence of a psychedelic compound and that sort of thing. The ordinary state is probably the worst state to be in and if you want to have these kinds of abilities, or at least if that's you want to express the ability. When, and that's why when I felt that Whatever being, what, however they were pressing on my foot, I'm, the very first thing I did was look around the room and said to myself, I see the ceiling fan, I see the thermostat, I am wide awake. I am not dreaming. Do that again. <laughs> I guess I've learned to do my own self-science. So that was, that was just coming out of sleep. So I guess that was a bit of a non-ordinary state. But, but that is a good right. point, though, and that is why many people meditate to have these experiences. Exactly. So you, you had the presence of mind in that state to not exactly snap out of a dreamlike state, but probably stay right in the middle. Mm -hmm. right? Still in a non-ordinary state, but you have your, your critical faculties as well. And that shows that's what happens for somebody who has practiced a lot, that you're able to maintain that middle ground. Right. So for those of you who are listening, who who want to connect with loved ones who have passed or who are mediums, that's why we always say when you do a reading, you're right in that in between. You can't be completely out of it in a meditative state because you have to talk to other people and deliver the messages. Right. So it is a training. You're right, Dean. Yeah, it's not it's not a state that people would naturally gravitate towards because we tend to collapse into sleep or we collapse into awake. But you kind of need to be in the middle. And that does take practice. So the fifth category uh, is we have the capacity to mentally influence the physical world, probably not through the application of the four physical forces that are known, but through some other means. 
And we, so Ooh, we don't I'd know love, what those I'd love for you to yet. give us some examples, or maybe just one as we're running out of time here. How do we right. mentally influence the physical world? Well, like the, the application of healing. If you uh, put highly focused attention on somebody else with the intention to heal them, there's a lot of evidence that especially talented healers can do that. Again, we don't know exactly how they do that, but there are, are well-conducted clinical trials that are published in mainstream journals that show that, that some practices, like Reiki is a, a healing practice, uh, it actually is efficacious. So we're trying to figure out how does it work. We don't know how it works exactly, but it does work. So that, that's where we have confidence that it's a real thing, uh, even though we don't know how to explain it very well at this point. It's and so a start. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, you have to start with getting confidence that it's a real thing. And so the, the last uh, or the sixth uh, thing that I think we can conclude is that we can also gain information from sources purported to be non-physical entities. I put the word purported in there because from a scientific perspective, we don't know where that information comes from. We know what the experience is like, right? As a medium, your experience is you're getting information from some non-physical entity, we don't have scientific tools yet that can prove that that's actually what's happening. But we can prove that the information that you get is correct. I love that. Yeah, I, I have people all the time that say, how do I help my skeptical family members know this is real? And I say, just have in your pocket experiences that can't be explained any other way. Right. Right. Yeah. Or give them a copy of Real Magic. That's right. I absolutely recommend Real Magic. It's It's not all heavy science this is so well documented lots of um excellent stories and you cover so much material that surprised me in here i wish we had more time to talk about it but thank you very much dr dean raden i hope everybody will check out that and his other wonderful books the conscious universe entangled minds and supernormal it's been a real pleasure having you on the show thank you Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.